Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hi, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're heard in over 60 countries around the world. We are the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs, and today we're broadcasting from Los Angeles. On this program, we love entrepreneurs. In fact, the whole show's about entrepreneurs, really. And entrepreneurs are creative. They make something out of nothing. They employ more people than the big guys, and it's, it's hard to um, be an entrepreneur and have enough guts to break out of the routine, to put everything you've got on the line and do something that you really enjoy doing despite being sniped at by a whole bunch of people who don't have enough guts to do it. Entrepreneurs are optimists and very fortunately, I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs constantly. You know, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An, oppo- an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. I mean, it's a totally different mindset to be an entrepreneur. When I get out of my circle, which fortunately is not that often, I meet a lot of people that think the world's going to hell. You know, they worry about the level of conflict. They worry about poverty and climate change, adversarial political systems. They worry about ISIS. They worry about technology. They worry about everything. You know, there are two types of people in this world, optimists and pessimists. The glass half full kind of guy or girl and the glass half-empty kind of person. Now, if you're a pessimist, you can put yourself into a worst-case scenario in a nanosecond. All you have to do is listen to Fox News and their sensationalism for five minutes, and you are there. (laughs) If you're a pessimist, you get an invitation to um, dinner from a new neighbour. You imagine food that you um, don't like followed by discussions that are going to be of absolutely no interest to you. And worse still, aha, they may be of a different political persuasion. You just know that this is going to be a disaster. You know, when you go out and buy new clothes, you buy a white jacket, you just lie in wait for the ruinous dab of red spaghetti sauce. So you get invited to a weekend at one of the most beautiful ski resorts in the country. What do you think? I'm going to be cold. I'm going to break an ankle. I'm going to freeze to death. God. Negativity may appear to be a great defense mechanism. You know, if you keep your your expectations low enough, you know, you won't be upset when things don't work out. But new research has revealed that the tendency to be a wet blanket in just about any situation doesn't merely ruin a good time and prevent you from making friends. It seems that it's a bad strategy by every measure. Optimists, as it turns out, do better in most avenues of life, whether it's work, schools, sports, relationships. They get depressed less often. They make more money. They have happier marriages, happier kids. And not only in the short run, the evidence shows that optimists live longer. Pessimism's been linked to higher odds of developing dementia. But the good news is that about 80% of the US population is at least reasonably optimistic. The other 20% vote for Donald Trump. The reality is that when you look at the state of the world, there's absolutely every reason today to be optimistic. 
So if you're not optimistic, you're just not up with the times. You're not paying attention. If you're a pessimist, get out and smell the roses. Stop listening to conspiracy theories. Stop looking for negatives. I'm not telling you to suddenly put on rose-coloured glasses. Just look at the facts. Even though humanity still faces tragedies like war and hunger and despite ISIS, the world is a much more peaceful place today than it's ever been. There's less violence in the world than ever. The homicide rate in Europe has fallen as much as 50-fold over the last 200 years. The rates of deaths in war have fallen to an all-time low. The biggest change in all sorts of situations across the planet, it's a shift towards evidence-based intervention and a depoliticisation of attempts to approve our lot. We've started to use data to back up policy, cutting through controversies that have held us back for millennia. We're beginning to focus our moral and physical energy on interventions that work as opposed to pushing particular ideologies. Now, we've seen this with the United Nations soldiers in their blue helmets. Sure, they've had some disastrous fuck-ups, but on average, they've had a dramatic overall effect in preventing civil wars from breaking out, keeping things under control. Look at the public health measures in underdeveloped countries. Things like sanitation, baby-to-mother contact, anti-diarrheal medications, deworming pills. Things like bed nets and deworming can make millions of people better off at an absolutely negligible cost. In parts of Africa, insecticide-treated bed nets have shown to cut down deaths of children under five from all causes by 20%, and the cost is under $5 per net for purchase and distribution. Trade and economic forces, they're, they're forces for massive increases in human well-being. The rise in India and China in particular, whose citizens have become far richer and healthier without them having to conquer other countries or the government having to radically redistribute wealth. Another fact is the actual advance in our technological capability, particularly the ability to deliver drugs cheaper and faster. The spread of innovations like mobile phones allow people to conduct business much more efficiently. You know, cell phones have really unlocked economic growth in third world areas. Now, it sounds unbelievable 10 years ago, but farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, now use cell phones to get information about crop prices before making long trips to the market. Instant weather information from their phones allows them to better protect their crops against damage. In 2002, just one in 10 people in Ghana, Kenya, Tanzania and Uganda owned mobile phones. Now they're as common as they are in the US. There's a number of other simple innovations that will improve health and well-being globally in the coming years, including mobile banking, digital education, on-site disease testing. You know, Bill Gates in his annual letter said, the lives of poor people in poor countries will improve faster in the next 15 years than at any other time in history. And their lives will improve more than anyone else on the planet. The human value system of the optimist worldwide wants to make the more and more people healthier. Optimists want to have people that are better educated and living longer. And this attitude's helped to drive this process forward, and it's going to continue to do so. It wasn't always the case. You know, people have become nicer to one another thanks to the rise of modern nations, judicial systems, the increase in trade, increasing respect for women, 
know, the rise in literacy, more people traveling, technology, the internet, the increase in the interaction of ideas, mobility and mass media, the ability to be able to communicate across great distances for very little money. Sure, we've still got a hell of a way to go, but the changes over the last 20 years really have been dramatic. Of course, there's still the existence of anti-humanistic, anti-enlightenment ideologies like um, Russia, North Korea and Iran, I guess the um, jihadist strains of Islam, and probably the biggest issue facing mankind is climate change, or the biggest issue facing Mankind is the ignorant morons who don't want to take any steps to address climate change, even if the overwhelming evidence is only 10% true, it is a disaster. So if you're a pessimist and you believe that the world's going to hell, I really pity you. You're going to spend a miserable life and then you're going to die and lying there, you're going to come to the realisation that, oops, this is it. All those fairy tales you've listened to about the mystery god in the sky, well, they were created especially to give you pessimists a short-term boost so you wouldn't take your misery out on every other, everybody else. But if you're an optimist, keep believing. Keep making this world a better place. Keep being an entrepreneur. Love every minute of life because life is beautiful. Now, speaking of being um, optimistic and healthy, US healthcare now costs $2.9 billion. That represents 17.5% of GDP, or nearly $10,000 a head for every person in the United States. Woo! However, be optimistic. Big data is coming to the rescue. Sometime in the not-too-distant future, getting a checkup, it's going to be different, be easy. So when the doctor writes down your symptoms, it will immediately in real time be cross-checked with others in your area. That'll make it easier to identify outbreaks and epidemics and identify them quickly. If you complain about shortness of breath, the heart monitor in your phone will instantly report how well your heart has functioned. say over the last month or six weeks or whatever. And these readings will then be aggregated with others in your community and reveal any possible hidden trends. Big data analysis will help your doctor assess how various options have worked for others with similar histories and similar body chemistry. This is the promise of big data in healthcare. Medical research and findings are now being combined into massive searchable databases and this makes it so much easier to assess and compare results. Databases can absorb terabytes worth of disparate data, including like things like the weather, analyse it immediately, insert some predictive analysis and you are in front. It'll make it clearer whether it's things like the drug you've been taking or something extraneous like the weather or the smog that's hurting you or making you feel better. The McKinsey Global Institute estimated that deploying big data could create $100 billion in value every year across the healthcare industry. That's $100 billion a year in value and remember, current costs are only $2.9 billion, so it could create 30 times more in value than the current costs. That is amazing. Now, the government's investing millions in analysing medical databases. That's not to mention health tracking research and products from people like Apple and Google and Fitbit and a bunch of others. Industrial internet solutions in the last few months have cut emergency room wait times by 
and the systems will be able to trace hospital-borne infections back to a specific piece of equipment or a specific patient. It'll be able to diagnose a rash with a smartphone. So healthcare is becoming more and more an information technology business. Of course, patient security is going to be a major issue, but as analytics improve, the pressure to bring down the cost of healthcare is going to build and build. There is no question that big data will become a big deal in medicine. So for you optimists, things are looking great. Now, don't forget, if you're a company director, a manager, or an executive, you should join the American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management, which has one common goal, to raise the standard and proficiency of both individuals and companies within what are accepted to be the most accepted accepted, most important disciplines of business, sales, marketing, and management. So do yourself a favor, go to AISMM.us right now. Join up, get the letters after your name, get the certificate for your wall, and start taking some of those classes. After the break, I'll be back with Jeff Ernst, who's the Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of Schmink, S-M-Y-N-C, the social word of mouth marketing platform. Now, no matter what business you're in, you have got to be across social media. And Schmink provides a toolkit for brands to foster advocate relationships that grow businesses. This is a great interview. I really enjoyed speaking to Jeff. He's a great guy and uh, knows his stuff. So this is a must a must here interview for everybody that's in business. I'm Bob Pritchard. This is Voice America Business Channel, and I'll be back with Jeff and a must-listen-to interview right after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we interview successful entrepreneurs, people involved in disciplines and and using techniques that can assist us all to be more effective in business. But the most entrepreneurs are uh, people who think outside the box and have something to share with other entrepreneurs that can help us all become more successful. You know, the world's changing very fast. Technologies seems to be multiplying by the day and we need to, we need to stay abreast of it. We need to stay on top of it. And that's difficult when you're trying to cope with all of the other things that you need to handle when you're running a business. It's one of the reasons that I urge every business uh, executive and owner out there to have mentors, people that have been there before, people who have got a track record and can assist you with advice that um, just may save you a lot of heartache in the future. Now, in these interviews, what I try to do is find out what makes these successful people tick 
so we can learn from their experiences and from the things that um, have made them successful. It's bloody hard to be successful in business and I want to learn how we can overcome the challenges that confront every business. You know, I speak to entrepreneurs who think that they're alone with some of the problems that they have. You're not. Every small business and every medium-sized business and every big business go through the same challenges. So we need to learn from the experiences of mentors and other entrepreneurs. Today's guest, Jeff Ernst, has been a marketing consultant and a strategy for hundreds of brands, including world-leading brands like ConAgra and LodgeNet. Jeff was VP of Sales and Marketing at Net Briefings, as well as a director at Minnesota West, where he won awards and he spoke frequently on innovation in civic and private partnerships. Today, Jeff's the Chief Operating Officer and co-founder of Schmink, the social word-of-mouth marketing platform, providing the toolkit for brands to foster advocate relationships that grow business. As we know, today, social media is driving business. You know, if you're in business, you have to understand social media if you wish to be successful and build that business. Now, Jeff is a business and integrated marketing leader with over 25 years of experience in developing and managing brands from startups to Fortune 500s, and he's had eight years in social media marketing. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Greetings. Uh, pleasure to be here, Bob. Uh, what does Schmink do? Well, uh, the short version is is that we are the social word of mouth marketing platform, and what that means is that if you're in social media marketing, if you're a small business to a big business, you've got some problems and some pretty big ones. Right. Uh, it's very, very difficult to reach people anymore. Um, you know, the organic reach problem has been going on for years. So if you've got a community of 100,000, you put something out there, maybe 1,000 people see it. Yes. Um, the cost of your ads keep going up. You're competing for people's attention with all the content they see every day. Uh, you know, brand trust is low. And so what we do is find ways to look inside your social media communities, identify those people who are really engaged with you on social media and excited about your brand and turn those people into word of mouth enthusiasts and advocates out there sharing your word that's trusted by their social circles and their people so that they become more engaged with your brand. And we just do all that on one platform, make it easy to manage those relationships. Yeah, the old days of um, monologue, uh, communicating with uh, potential customers through monologue are over, aren't they? We, we now need to engage our brands. We need to talk to them in the language that they speak in. We need to relate to them as, um, relate to them as people, don't we? We need to change the whole way we communicate. Absolutely. I mean, brands need to understand there's an authenticity factor and a, a trust in that that monologue experience you're talking about is just very, very low. Um, roughly about one-fourth versus it is coming from people that they trust and they know. And so finding a language and finding, you know, not only from the brand standpoint, but the people that be able to share that as well, it just makes a difference. You can't hide behind a logo anymore. You can't hide behind a, a catchphrase. It's got to be engagement that actually brings people and how that brand connects to their lives. And uh, it's it's not... Anyway, in, in the old days <laughs> with traditional media, um, mm -hmm. a lot of it was weight, wasn't it? If you had enough money and you could continue to, to push that brand out there um, endlessly, then you did get traction. That doesn't work anymore, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, you can actually still go out there and you can spend as much as you want. But the efficiency and the response to it, you know, the declining curve from it is far greater than it used to be. Uh, you just can't spend your way to success um, because the message is competing with so much out there that it, it just can't buy its way to the top anymore. And, and people are looking for things that matter to them more frequently. And, you know, even last week when Facebook came out with a change, it says to the individuals, you pick what you want to see more of. So if you're a brand, you have even less of a chance of that being seen, even if you want to spend. 
So what are the primary benefits of um, word-of-mouth marketing through social for brands? Well, the first thing is, is that it's, you know, we say shareable is the new viral. If you've got content that people want to engage with and content definitely does matter uh, and the quality of it, if it's shared by people, it reaches on average for every potential advocate that you have. One of those people sharing something out reaches 150 people and they're going to pay attention to it far more. They're about anywhere from eight to 10 times more likely to act on something they see from somebody they know Right. versus something from a brand. So that becomes just more and more valuable uh, in a way of scaling that reach instead of trying to spend your way to it, getting people to actually interact with it and pay attention to it by using people they know to reach them. That's one of the big things is creating reach and then getting people to actually take action on it. It doesn't matter anymore. If it, you know, the days in social media where you just mattered how many impressions you had and how many eyeballs you put on it, Right. that's getting to matter less and less uh, as well. It matters, how does it make a difference to your business? And it makes a difference if people act on it. So getting that voice gets people to act on it, gets them to try your product, gets them to visit your website, gets them to buy far more than it would otherwise. So it's the quality of, of the relationship, not necessarily the frequency of impact or the things that used to count. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So how, how does what you've described differ from traditional traditional um, social media marketing. How, how, how is that different? Well, when you look at who's engaged, what we do or, or our platform does is we really figure out who those people are who are engaging with you. And when you look at the size of your community, most of your engagement actually comes from about 1% to 3% of your people. Right. The rest of them are, are very passive or else, you know, there's a lot of them out there, usually 10 to 20% of them that are just flat out fake profiles that are following you. Uh, you're connecting with the people who actually are engaged that way. And so what you're doing is taking something that has become almost a broadcast media and getting it back to being social and being about person to person relationships, and in this case, person to brand, but being able to respond so you know the people, if they're really engaged with you, and they comment about something, you know, to actually comment and start a discussion back. Um, you're, you're putting it in human relationship terms versus, you know, impression terms and things like that. So it's very different in that you're looking at people within your community that are engaged with you and focusing your attention on them versus just blasting something out. So if, um, so if you're, sorry. sorry, go on. No, I, I, you know, that, that's your primary difference is just doing it in a different, different way. Okay. So if, if you're a small business, for example, mm-hmm. um, how do you determine which of the um, various social media platforms is going to work for you? Or do you need to use all of them in an integrated campaign? I mean, what's the best way to go about that? I would never encourage anyone to be on all of them. It just takes an understanding of where your people are. Uh, You know, there's almost the the foregone conclusion that people have a Facebook presence and and so many brands do as a central hub. Uh, But so much ties more into the video and the, you know, photo images and things like that. But depending on what matters to your brand, is it more where you need to see frequent engagement? Then maybe Twitter is the right choice for you. Is it something where you can tell a story more with the video going on than you know, YouTube and Vine and some other ones can be those channels? But just know where your people are going to be and you can pretty easily figure out demographics for where your, your sweet spot is going to be. Find the ones you can actually pay attention to and don't over-dilute your efforts. I, I was told recently by a social media brand specialist um, that Facebook is so valuable as a business tool and that um, it's um, I guess reputation as a as a marketing tool is getting to be so strong that if you have a great Facebook site we're getting very close to the point where you won't need a website how much truths in that statement there are definitely brands that have have gone so far as to do that and it depends on whether or not you can create enough engagement and find tools that will, you know, accentuate that Facebook platform because at a certain point, there's only so much you can do within it. And if you want to get additional insights, you want to get additional engagement or provide a unique experience, 
uh, you're still limited within somebody else's rules and, and being able maybe direct people outside of it becomes advantageous. But there are definitely ways where Facebook is powerful enough and is, uh, you know, it, its own sort of media channel, if you will, sure. that, uh, you know, it, it can supplant those those websites. So how do you, we're still in the early stages, I guess, of, of social media. Um and it's evolving very, very quickly. Where's it going in the next five years? What's going to happen in the next five years? You're seeing a you know a shift on a lot of things where now you've seen the evolution of all these social media networks, and they've had to become businesses. Right. Uh, they, they've all of a sudden had to figure out okay, and they're you know, most of them are becoming quite successful at it. How are they making money? And obviously, they're making money through advertising through creating almost e-commerce channels within them, which is this evolution of where the early stages of now, where within Facebook, you're seeing the shop now and buy now buttons within Twitter and things like that. You're yep. seeing it become much more of a complete experience beginning to end from the engaged people to be able to shop right there. Uh, and I think the next step that you're gonna have to look at is because it has become almost a broadcast media in that regard, it is, I believe firmly, and the reason we built the platform and company that we did, is you're going to have to have a word of mouth program to reach people because otherwise there is just so much noise that you're not going to be able to compete for attention. So is um, social media uh, only for the big guys? I mean, in traditional media, going back 20 years or 10 years or whatever, um, Anybody could um, write a newspaper ad, most of them not very effective, not very good, but you could write a newspaper ad, you could place it, you knew who was going to look at it, or you could um, record your own radio commercial. But again, it would be crap, but you know, you'd, you'd get it out there. Today, because weaving the um, um, social media, different the different sites, the different applications, it's much more complex. It's much more highly scientific, isn't it? So is it just for the big guys who can afford to um, have all the analytics and, and um, people who manage this for them? Is it cutting out the small that, guy? Absolutely not. I, I think social media is still the place where the smaller business and the entrepreneurs still have as much advantage as anybody else does. Uh, there are a, you know, so many tools and so much competition. We see it in our business every day of all the people that compare themselves to things we're doing or, or different, uh, you know, analytics tools or different publishing tools. There's a lot of it out there. It can be a very confusing thing, especially for a small business. I think where a, a big business has an advantage is they end up a lot of time with one very large platform that pulls everything in where the small business person is kind of forced a lot of times to go out and find a, a series of tools that they need to cobble together a solution. I think that's where the big business gets an advantage, but it definitely can be done. Uh, and we're one platform where we're making it easy for the smaller guy by tying in a lot of those things. Uh, but there are other ways to do it as well, where, where you can get those insights. You can figure out when the best times to publish you know, the challenge I think for a lot of small businesses is really trying to figure out the time to tell their story. They've got to run their business and be marketers. Yeah. Uh, and this is a content driven uh, place for people to engage. And so figuring out how do I get up uh, anywhere from a blog post to I need to go shoot a video about something to create something that's engaging. That's usually the biggest challenge is finding time to create the content that brings people in for a small business more than anything else. So, so by the time you, you allocate a person or a couple of people, if you've got a small business person or a couple of people to create content and you mm -hmm. get a, um, a company like you guys to, to manage it for you and you pay for all the analytics um, and all of that that you need to be able to monitor and determine who your audience is, where they, is, where they are and what they're looking at, um, is that an expensive exercise? I mean, what sort of just ballpark numbers if you're a small business and you wanted to do it right what what sort, mm -hmm. what sort of ballpark amount of money a month say would you need to allocate is it 20 grand is it 40 grand is it 
No, uh, you know, there are a lot of things out there that you could use and use freemium versions of things and cobble together your own solution with some free tools. But even us for a small business, uh, giving you things like analytics and, uh, you know, the tools to, you know, identify your valuable relationships and publish at the best times and, and really figure out how to reach people at scale. Yeah. I mean, you know, take off a few zeros. We're at $40 a month. Really? Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, so what's a social brand advocate and why is it important that businesses have social brand advocates? It's very important for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, the one is, is these people, that if you find the right people, uh, you know, they're going to be the people that are out there talking about your brand and doing it in the conversations that you can't control. And far more of those, I believe the number somewhere around, people have around 70 conversations a day that involve brands right. that you as a brand aren't privy to. Right. So finding the people that can actually be out there and be engaging with those people and being excited about it enough to actually have an impact on people doing, you know, usually when you talk about a brand advocate, those people reach a factorial of eight. So if you do the math out, the eight times seven times six, one empowered advocate can impact 40,000 people. So if you've got a brand advocate community of 25 people, you can reach a million people. And there, there's not another really good way to do that and have people actually trust it and act on it. And so when you look at what a social word of mouth impression is worth um, versus a paid impression, depending on the type of product and things like that, when you get that authentic impression, with people to people, that's worth anywhere from five to 250 times more what a paid impression is if you get it right. So these people that you can get into your community, give them an insider experience, get them talking about the brand in the way that you'd like to present and being out there and talking about you in the conversations you're not a part of have a far greater impact than just one ad impression, which once it's done, it's done. Yeah, I understand that... Um Lady Gaga, for example, built her support um, based around the world by using social brand advocates. She had 10 or 15 placed in various places and had them sort of pushing out um, stuff all the time. And in return, she would expose them to new songs and she'd give them various incentives to keep talking about it. Um, if I don't have those advantages, how do I build a community of social brand advocates? The one thing that gets asked a lot about advocates is the question of what's in it for them. Yeah. And the, the, the key answer to it is, is really what's in it for them is their connection to your brand. Right. They're not necessarily looking for the compensation. If someone's looking and saying, well, what's in it for me right away, they're generally not going to be a good brand advocate. That's someone who it would be what I would label as uh, someone called an influencer in that that length of engagement or almost like a celebrity endorsement it only lasts as long as someone's getting paid for it. Right. But a true advocate has actually got a passion for your brand. They talk about it, whether or not they're a part of your program. And so just identifying those people who are likely in your social media communities and engage with you anyway. Right. And giving them a little bit of an insider experience. If it's a special event, if it's, they get little, surprising delight moments where you give them a trinket of some form that's of value to them that no one else can get, those things can go a very long way to someone who's a real advocate. And so, and so it doesn't take a lot of money. So how do you keep them motivated? I mean, how, how do you ignite this movement to keep motivated to get out there and to, to um, work their butts off for you? If you if you follow the people who have really been a part of the word of mouth uh, marketing part for a long time, at a certain point, they almost take care of themselves. It's how the brand fits into their lives, and, and they want to talk about it. So if your brand almost went away, there's a good chance this community would keep on going without you. Uh, it's fun with people that if you can provide them enough things to go on as far as content that is interesting to them, if you can provide some, you know, on a social media part, can you make it interesting from almost a gamification standpoint where you make things contests and how do you make them feel involved? Can you get insights from them on the products or the advertising or the events you're having? If they can feel like they're a part of it, they'll keep coming back. 
it's when they feel that all you're doing is using them for a purpose that you're going to lose that interest. A lot of advocate solutions out there become almost just a, please share my content instead of giving something in return. Right. And in the long run, that's not sustainable, where you're looking to create something sustainable that is a two-way relationship. They've got to feel valued. Absolutely. If you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Jeff Ernst, who is the COO and co-founder of Schmink, which is S-M-Y-N-C. And we're talking about um, brand social media and brand advocates. So what goes into the Schmink score? I presume that's um, a, um, a score that you've developed. And how does it differ from a cloud score? If, if you're listening to the show and you don't know what a cloud score is, um, and if I'm wrong in this, um, correct me, but um, <laughs> cloud score, it's a, it's a score out of 100 that um, basically represents your influence. The more influential you are, the higher your cloud score. I think um, the last time I saw, um, I think Obama had like the highest um, cloud score and uh, strangely enough, I think Justin Bieber was second. But um, it, it's not just a an average of your influence. It's a cumulative thing where the more um, <clears throat> networks and the more, more interaction you have, the higher your score. So... What is the Schmink score and how, how is it different? Why You're obviously going to say it's superior. Why is it superior? It's, uh, you know, we look at it in a different way, and we're talking about it in terms of engagement. Right. Uh, we want to know when it comes to that is how has this person been engaged with your brand? And we look at things like the type of social actions they're taking, if it's a like, a share, or you know, if they're commenting on something. Uh, we see it as sort of a, a lazy part or, or an uninvolved part. If someone just pushes the like button, that isn't someone really we see as someone willing to go out there and talk about your brand, engage in the conversation. They're not sharing it with their friends. While there's some value to it, we really, on an engagement standpoint, we value those things where people are involved in the conversation, have skin in the conversation game a little bit more. And we want to see them doing it frequently, and we want to see them doing that over time. Whereas cloud is really considered with influence. How many people can I reach? How many people can impact? Does that really make a difference in how they feel about your brand? And are they going to be willing to go out and talk about it? Because from my standpoint as a marketer, it's far easier for me to help somebody build influence than it is to help them build passion about the brand. Right. And we want people who are going to be advocates. Whereas a Justin Bieber with a cloud score of 100 or 99, uh, it might be great and he might decide this product today is great and a different one is tomorrow. We want to know the people who are really part of your brand's culture already online. Right. Okay. So getting away from um, the brand, the uh, social media brand business for a minute, mm-hmm. what's, what's the best piece of advice that um, anybody's ever given you? I mean, you've been involved in, in startups before and there's unfortunately something like 95% of startups fail so what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given um, early in your career that's uh, enabled you to be successful over and over again you know one of the things that stuck with me for for a while is is while I was in business and marketing and and things like that it was actually almost the complete polar opposite of the industry is I was a director of marketing in in the senior living industry right and uh, one of the co-founders, when I was on road trips with him, uh, you know, and in the mass, this was a pretty large group of senior living homes. Right. Uh, he would always sit down with people and take the time, and it was always authentically about the people. And if there's one thing that always mattered to me in the end, and the one thing that, you know, when we looked at even building what we're doing now and everything else, is learning about that authenticity, which it's become cliche, but when you really become interested in what other people are doing and learning that it's about the people and their problems and their stories, uh, it has really been the most valuable relationship because it, it helps build your business from the inside, help learn the problem that you're trying to solve from the outside and helps build everything around it. So it's learning to listen and not just hear. Absolutely. Uh, so, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm just about to start a new business, startup, tech startup. Um, what three tips are you going to give me 
day one. I'm launching tomorrow. What are the three tips that you're going to help me on my way with? Yeah, the first thing I would say is to build a network. Uh, you know, find people around you that have been there, done that, and and, and learn from them. Uh, actually, where where Smink is based out of, we're uh, here in Chicago at a place called 1871, which was the wow. year of the historic Chicago fire. Yeah, uh, it's a an incubator space that has over 400 companies in it, as well as many venture capital firms, uh, a large network of mentors, and just a great sense of community. Building that network out when you're usually so involved in building what you are and almost becoming a, you know, you, you get tunnel vision as an entrepreneur and only focused on what you're doing. Yep. But finding people who have been, been there, done that, build that network out is my first bit of advice. Second thing is, is test, test, test. Yep. Find small ways to test every bit of what you're doing in the product and taking it to market in your message and find out what resonates, what works and what doesn't and keep improving it. Um, there's a reason the lean methodology has taken off and that's because in as quick as today's data-driven economy works, um, finding ways to do it more efficiently matters. And, and I think the third one is going to be always follow through and be authentic. It is an age of transparency. If something doesn't work and you want people to try it, let them know, hey, this isn't going to be perfect. Right. There's a forgiveness to it out there. Uh, so if you can network, you can test, and you can be authentic. It's probably the best thing you can do. I think like, being part of an incubator is really the way to go, isn't it? Because you've got access to um, all the mistakes that other people make and all the advice they can give you. You've got the capital there, and one of the most difficult things, of course, is raising capital, which is always an absolute pain in the ass. Um, and if, if, if they see you there and they see you working and they see you your performance then it's much much easier and I guess the the other one is that um, as you grow you can um, select better and better talent that you can that you get exposed to it's got all the advantages hasn't it it's got it's it's really the way for a, a tech startup to, to go isn't it it really does if you've got a good community like that in, in the city you're at uh, it becomes invaluable from, you know, uh, because other people that are very experienced want to be part and connected to that community as well. I mean, it's it's not altruistic. They'd love to see you become a legal client or a finance client sure. or something like that down the road. But, uh, you know, I can even say here that it, as we look to raise some funding ourselves, you know, the lawyers I was able to connect to and the ways that we're going to raise funding you know, I avoided mistakes that I thought I knew what I was doing, and I, I learned very much what the latest practices are and what the best solutions were to do it. And, you know, mentors who made me look at certain things in the business plan otherwise, and, uh, and being able just to, you know, I can walk across the hall and be, uh, you know, where Techstars is at, one of the leading accelerator programs in the world, and actually pick their brains if I can. Yeah. Um, you know, that support level is just very tough to get otherwise. Yeah. I agree. So you've worked for large companies and startups. What's the biggest obstacle for brands and social? The biggest obstacle really is uh, is finding the content that's going to find people to engage and then knowing what to do with it from there. Um, most people have, it's almost like websites were 20 years ago. People just built a website and then they went, okay, now what? Right, and, and there's still a lot of social where they put something out and then they go, okay, now what? Um, the biggest obstacle is figuring out how you actually convert that to business. They, they still struggle on how to measure it, but now how do you actually convert it and make it part that actually ends up affecting your bottom line? Uh, and that's really where social needs to evolve is building relationships and building you know, places for action to happen. You can actually attribute it to being a positive part of your business rather than just vanity metrics. It's also critical, isn't it, to um, uh, have a strategy so that you're not just putting out disjointed or independent pieces of information, but it all fits into a bigger long-term plan. Mm -hmm. You know, go into it with an objective. Go to it with what, you know, if you can find content out there to share because it's difficult to create it all, but it supports your central message. Yes. You know, find tools that will help you do those things in order to keep engagement up and just reinforce that. 
you know, you need to blend in a sales message every so often, but you definitely need to make it more of a social atmosphere, which goes against a lot of what, you know, sometimes when you're in small business, that's almost the hardest thing. You want to talk about this sale that you're having and what the special is today yeah. versus blending that in as a certain percentage. And so you really need to calendar things out, know what your goals are, know what your, your core message is. And, uh, you know, keep that consistent, not just within, you know, on Facebook, but keep that message consistent across all your networks that you're using and finding out what works and what doesn't. Jeff, great advice. Jeff Ernst, co-founder of Schmink. That's S-M-Y-N-C. Thank you very much for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. Now, you can connect with Jeff. You've got a pen and pad handy. It's Jeff, J-E-F-F, at the Jeff Ernst. That's at the T H E J E F F E R N S T and on LinkedIn. Jeff Ernst Schmink. LinkedIn. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Network, and I'll be back with you after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Channel. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs, and today we are broadcasting from Los Angeles. We've had record rain. Those of you who um, are overseas, we're heard in about 60 countries. So those of you that um, are listening overseas and you heard the song, It Never Rains in California. Do you remember that song? Well... It really doesn't. We've just had record rain for July, the most ever recorded since records were taken. Los Angeles so far has had one-third of an inch, which is less than one centimetre of rain, and it set a 100-year-old record. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that I... And we wonder why we've got a drought. One of the things I love about being an entrepreneur is that with a good idea and diligence and passion... Absolutely anything is possible. However, most businesses go bust during the first five years. While I think of it, while I think of it, Jeff Ernst, great interview, wasn't it? I loved it. It was really good. I'll give you Jeff's email address. So go and get that same pad you wrote on before and put this down, Jeff Ernst. That's E-R-N-S-T. It's Jeff at Schmink, S-M-Y-N-C dot com. That's Jeff at Schmink, S-M-Y-M-C at S-M-Y-N-C at dot com. Sorry. Okay. Most businesses go broke in the first five years. Now, some blame the economic downturn, but to me, the blame lies squarely with entrepreneurs and business executives who have not one single solitary fucking clue on how to run a business. Now, I've been a business consultant to startups and early stage and small and medium and large businesses in about 10 countries, in about 20 different um, industries, and I've helped them uh, create business plans and structure investment strategies and raise funds and protect IP and a whole bunch of other stuff, all of which is required for business development and business growth. However, you know, there are five very clear reasons why 95% of businesses fail. And usually when you're a consultant like I am, you can walk into a business, start talking to the CEO, and within a couple of minutes, you know exactly what's wrong with the place. And the first reason is that 97% of entrepreneurs and executives have received absolutely no formal training in how to run a business or how to manage business development or business growth. It's like giving a computer nerd some wood, some nails, some glass, what else, hinges and electrical and plumbing fittings and asking them to build a house. They haven't got a clue. So 
lack of education and training is one of the most important reasons why so many businesses fail, particularly in the first 12 months. Running a business and employing staff is one of the only activities that can be legitimately conducted without the managing director or the business owner having any qualifications on how to run a business. A taxi driver has to be licensed, a security guard has to pass a security training program and be licensed, a plumber has to be licensed. In most states, electricians, architects, interior designers and building contractors need to be licensed by architectural examiners. However, if you want to run a business, get credit everywhere and expose your suppliers to potential financial losses, employ an unlimited number of salaried staff, run up big debts to the IRS, then it's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks to form your own limited company and you're up and running. So you can expose, you can expose everybody else, but it's not going to cost you, a, you know, anything. Over half of these companies are going to go out of business owing people money, often thousands of dollars. Yet if I robbed a company for the same amount of money, I'd go to jail. Sure, most states of the US, it's a mandatory requirement for every new business owner to purchase a business trading license. 50 bucks will do it. No questions, no skill test, no multiple choice questions, nothing. Some businesses, often because of their ability to borrow money and maintain their burn rate past the very difficult first 12 months, but the failure rate continues after 12 months as they begin to run out of money. When entrepreneurs begin, they're powered by endless amounts of passion and enthusiasm and working 24 hours a day and running through brick walls and living on Coca-Cola and, and ramen noodles. You know, it's great. Problem is, as soon as the pressure starts, this wears very thin. And usually after a few months, most business owners find themselves struggling to cope with the stressful demands of running their business because they don't have training or the skills to manage their business effectively. The second reason businesses fail is because too many decision makers are indecisive. And if you're indecisive, you are screwed. You know, they'll hesitate over a decision made by a middle manager and then they'll begin to micromanage everything. They'll miss a realistic business growth opportunity because they don't know whether they should do it or not. You know, and once you're indecisive, the workforce loses confidence, morale dissipates, work ethic diminishes, business development and growth stops, and in a short time frame, companies go bust. The third reason for business failure is when they reach the financial tipping point when annual turnover and profit levels off. Untrained business owners often dismiss this by attributing it to a solidifying of business when it should be addressed with an immediate sense of urgency. And the fourth reason businesses fail is when an untrained business owner hits a problem which they have no idea how to manage. It's not the time to bury your head in the sand hoping the problem will go away. You've got to do something about it. And the final reason that businesses fail is because few business owners get mentors and seek out help. You know, too embarrassed, they, they fail to go out and reach out for help. Now, you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show Worldwide on Voice America Business. If you've got a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer it on air or we'll email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter and the radio show summary, which is sent out to over 16,000 business executives in 60 countries every month. We've got an edition, I think, going out either today or tomorrow. We're avid users of LinkedIn, so become my contact on LinkedIn or on Twitter or on Facebook. We'd love to keep in touch with you. And don't forget to join the American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management. Go to AISMM.us. So thanks for joining us on today's show, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. In the meanwhile, remember, if you're not pushing the envelope and you're not living on the edge, you are taking up too much fucking space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.